2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today.
3: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
4: means Brexit. My
5: administration
6: has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
4: Hello and welcome. I'm Royful Brown, who is in my beloved Oakland, California, one week before I go back home to Birmingham to see how my parents are doing and to spend Christmas with them. Today, we look at the uprisings in Iran. I will honestly admit the fact that it is now December and these protests started in September. It's for shame. Uh, that Mid-Atlantic hasn't addressed them so far. But today, we're going to right that wrong. I have two guests with me today. First, I have Mudge Madrada, who is a founding member of the Iranian Diaspora Collective, which has just been created in response to the Iranian uprisings. And we're also joined by Helen Kamali who is an Iranian-American and the co-founder of the Azidi Co., which is a streetwear for freedom project which donates funds to Iranian-centric charities. With human rights activists in Iran claiming that at least 470 people have been killed since the demonstrations began, and with more than 18,000 who've been arrested, we ask if these protests will topple the regime of the Ayatollahs.
2: According to members of her family, her mother and her brother, who have spoken to media outside of Iran, they say that Massa was arrested on September 13th when she was leaving a subway station in the capital, Tehran. Her brother was with her at the time. She was uh, detained by the morality police. She was then ushered into a van and transported to a police station. And then at that police station, according to the officials here who have since released CCTV footage, she suddenly collapsed. The police say they believe she had pre-existing conditions and that was the cause of the heart attack. Her family have a different version of events. They say she had no pre-existing health issues. She was a healthy 22-year-old woman who was taken and she never left that police station. She was transported to a hospital where she was in a coma for a few days and then she was taken off life support and pronounced dead. Her family has laid her body to rest in her hometown on Saturday morning and the entire country is demanding an investigation into what actually happened. We've heard not only from her family demanding answers from officials, we've heard from uh, the Interior Ministry who has launched an investigation into uh, determining the cause of death. We've also heard from former high-ranking officials inside Iran, including former uh, President Khatami, as well as the uh, former Foreign Minister Mohammed Javad Zarif, who have all expressed their sorrow and deep condolences to the family for the events that took place. The main issue here is not just what happened to her. The issue is that the um, officials need to be responsible for the well-being of people they have in custody, and that is something that is at the heart of this issue at the moment.
4: Marge, I'm going to come to you. What was it about specifically of this incident which so enraged the Iranian people?
7: Well, that is a good question. Look, I think the truth of the matter is that this uprising has been in the works for some time now. You saw the Green Movement in 2009, where there was, as you know, millions of people in the streets. That time, it was more through the lens of reform. You know, Massey, Najad and Soutarde had sort of organized White Wednesday, which is a now very famous moment in the history of the women's movement of Iran, removing their hijab. You have the executions in 2019 of over 1,500 people for being accused of being against God and the government and protesting for everything from freedom of speech to asking for a secular government, which the Iranian people very much want and deserve. And so the murder of Masa Jina Amini, a Kurdish woman, this undercurrent has been boiling, a uh, simmering, becoming a boiling pot now for a number of years. I think you've exponentially seen more and more human rights workers, lawyers, journalists, people like Hossein like people have been consistently coming forward, whether it's being in prison, torture, their families in danger, have been pushing forward because I think that people have not much to lose. And I think we have officially, we're at that crossroads where it's important to keep in mind also that this is a population of people that about 60% of the population is under the age of 30. These are people that grew up with TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. They're consuming global content, Western content. Much of why we've been so moved by the youth of Iran is that they're incredibly in touch with culture. And so I think you've got this wild sort of presentation of, of instances happening on top of COVID, on top of sanctions, on top of alienation globally. And you've got a very large population of young people who are also extremely educated. And so there's frustration, societally, and if you think about what the Iranian people have dealt with over the past 43 years, you've got 2,500 years of a culture that looks very different than what the Islamic Republic is, and and I think they are no longer interested in being defined through the lens of the Islamic Republic.
4: How important is the hijab to this, not only to women, but to young Iranians in, in, sense, in, in sense of their expression of individuality and freedom? If I'm reading anything correctly, a lot of these protests, at least at the start, were women were at the spearhead. And the hijab is most definitely one of those key points of anger.
7: So the hijab is essentially the the brand of the Islamic Republic. That is the number way, number one way of them marking their way on society. And you know, Reza Pahlavi was adamantly against the hijab. He wanted the country to move towards a more modern Western Western orientation. And so Ayatollah Khomeini was uh, a staunch believer in women. In his opinion, this is the proper expression of of, of Islam. But it then got extended beyond just hijab into, you know, legally speaking, women have 50, you know, they are viewed as 50% of value than men. Women no longer were able to divorce. They were no longer able to expect custody of their children. They were no longer able to even get a passport or bank accounts. I mean, the way I really try to explain this through a Western lens is that women in Iran are living in a conservatorship. They are living in a framework of conservatorship where they have very little agency over their own futures to design their own futures and so again it is difficult when you have generations of women who had education opportunity or working part of the iranian culture and then over the past one and a half, two generations have sort of been shoved into an ar- archaic box. Islam is not even necessarily native to the Iranian people. You know, there's multiple faiths and cultures within Iran, and this expression of Islam was a very small fracture of the population of Iran up until the clerics and the ayatollahs were able to dismantle the framework of the monarchy and and essentially put them and themselves in a position of power where they could, you know, essentially declare themselves on the level of as an imam and supreme leader. And so, you know, Massey Ali Najad talks about hijab being the Berlin Wall of the Islamic Republic. I believe that most of us believe that very much. And whether it's Sharina Abadi or Nasrin Sudeh, like many, many, many very deep thought leaders who have been focusing on human rights and women's rights within Iran have spoken at length around this topic of hijab. It's simply not about the hijab. The hijab is a brand for this flavor of Islam.
4: My, my last question to you before I, I bring Helen in, into the conversation. Describe the, to the best of your ability, the Iranian governmental structure. We know there is a supreme leader. We, we call it a theocracy from the West, but there is a parliament. There are Elements which aren't part of state-sponsored Islam. Just give us a, a rough overview of how the Iranian state is actually structured, please.
7: So I should start by saying I am not a historian or scholar of the Islamic Republic. I I really learned a lot from Dr. Human Sashar and a number of other scholars out there who are heard amazing historians and would be amazing guests for you. So I want to not be I want to be transparent that. That, that this is not my area of expertise, but from what I understand, they essentially have inserted a number of articles into the constitution, I believe it's article four, that while the parliament and the constitution of Iran is fairly moderate, they the, the supreme leader and the clerics essentially inserted something called article four, And that this Article 4 essentially allows them to executive order a number of decisions. And so while there's a framework of quote-unquote democracy, and I think that's what they've been hanging their hat on, they've also inserted a number of articles that allow them to essentially amend and change at will as they choose based on Islam and based on the supreme leader's belief. And so that's why I think you have had generations of people believing that reform was such a thing and possible, because... The basic frameworks of the Islamic Republic are actually pretty decent bones. There's a good structure there, but I think what's happened is that there's workarounds that have given the Supreme Leader and, and, the, and the leading clerics, which I believe is about 12 of them, the majority of control. And, and of course, how the people are elected into parliament is also quite a comedy in itself because the majority of those people are people that are in business with the Islamic Republic and or just simply related to members of the cleric group. So I wouldn't say that there's a huge amount of framework around, you know, elections and being able to campaign and vote your representation into parliament. And so while the framework of it is good, the players are quite bad actors within the framework. And I think Since they control the majority of influence, they control the media, they control the newspapers, they control censorship, it's very easy for you to control who is able to play within that framework of a constitution because you control the access to information and power. And so the threshold to actually have influence within that parliament is is pretty low.
4: Thank you for that very detailed answer there, Maj. Helen, I'm going to bring you in. Your, your, Your father left Iran before 1979, and you've been back to Iran on numerous occasions. You're most definitely part of the Iranian diaspora. With your trips back to Iran, could you give us a a real sense of how attitudes to not just the hijab, but attitudes towards women, how you've actually seen them change as being somebody who's of Iranian descent, who's been to Iran some 12 or 13 times?
8: Yes, definitely. I think when we look at the attitudes of the Iranian population, I think the more removed the ages of individuals become from the 1979 revolution. I think when the hardliners first came in and when hijab was mandated, I think there was a level of strictness enforced upon people that maybe even identified as revolutionaries who opposed the Islamic regime coming into power in the first place. And immediately following the revolution, the Iran-Iraq war kind of broke out. And there's so many different factors that play into the fears that are instilled in maybe some of the individuals that identify as the older population. But then as we get more removed from that, and then there are people that weren't even born before the revolution or even during the war, you have people that are genuinely seeking like their fundamental rights as it comes to freedom of expression. And that comes into play in so many different ways, hijab being one of them. And I, as an individual that has been able to travel back to Iran on numerous occasions, I remember going back and hijab being much more strict in the 90s or even the early 2000s. And then when I would visit in more recent years, it felt like the envelope was consistently being pushed. It wasn't a full removal in the way that we're seeing now where women are taking their hijabs off completely. This is very revolutionary, just being able to see those images come out of the country. But we went from hijab being very strict with buttons on coats and coats having to be very loose to now women finding ways to kind of roll up their sleeves more. The veil is going back further and further. And to Moj's point, this is kind of the Berlin Wall. So it is very unique to see this right now.
2: Anti-government and anti-hijab protests in Iran have largely been led by women, bringing some to draw parallels to the country's revolution in the late 1970s. That's right. Women were the driving force then
8: and now. The nearly five-week-long uprising we're seeing now was triggered by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She died last month while in custody
7: of the country's so-called morality police. Let's bring in Caroline modaresi tirani She is an Emmy-nominated journalist with family in Iran. Her grandfather was once imprisoned by the government there for his political views. Caroline, thank you so much for for joining us. It's great having someone with, you know, your background here with us to talk about this. First, we want to ask if you're able to contact your relatives in Iran and what are you hearing firsthand about the unrest there?
8: Yeah, I mean, it's been very difficult to contact family. The internet has been very sporadic. The regime has tried to crack down
5: on anyone's ability to be able to actually contact family members and to get the message of the violence that they're committing against peaceful protesters out into the public sphere internationally. So it's been very, very challenging. One thing I did learn in the last 12 hours is that
8: in addition to the horrific levels of violence, including live ammunition, rubber pellets and beating protesters with batons. The regime is also levelling financial violence against protesters in the form of high bail.
4: I want to go back and actually look at the timeline of events so we can really get up to date here. So Amini's death was on the 16th of September. The next day on the 17th, there were Protests at her funeral, with mourners chanting "Death to the dictator." On September the twenty-second, then the protests seemed to then spread across Iran. September the thirtieth, there was a shootout at a police station in the city Ahidan. On October the third, it was just the first time that the supreme leader then did actually address the protests. Khomeini said, "I say clearly that the riots and the insecurity were engineered by America and the occupying false Zionist regime." of Israel, as well as their paid agents with the help of some traitorous Iranians abroad. November the 21st, we have the symbolic defiance of the Iranian football team with not singing the national anthem at the start of the World Cup game against England, though subsequently they did sing it in the following two games. December the 4th, Iran says that they're going to abolish the morality police. Now, that's just a broad overview of some of the kind of key incidents that we've had in this uprising. Marge, could you give us some sense of how these demonstrations are really racking Iran? Are they coordinated? Is there any sense of a a unified opposition to the regime, which is maybe adding fuel to these demonstrations?
7: So I wanted to first address the last comment about the Islamic Republic striking down the morality police. That was that's a inaccurate statement. That's that's a spin doctor marketing moment. They spun out a few days before they started to commit their first executions. So, well, and, and on that
4: point, why, why don't you explain to us who exactly the morality po- police are? Because obviously they've been very key with the, 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 the murder of Amini.
7: So the morality police, they report directly to the supreme leader and the clerics. They are not part of the military, military is separate from them. Think of it as like a a private organization that looks after the supreme leader called Bastiche. Iranians in general are a very paranoid and conspiracy oriented group of people. That's a whole nother podcast in itself on why it's, it's many years of government interferences and Western intervention and leadership sort of pushing through business agendas. And so you know, if you really think about the genius of the supreme leader, he knows that ultimately, the Shah of Iran was dethroned and exiled because his military turned against him. And he knows that that military has the capability of turning against him. And so to future proof himself, like any good dictator, he created an alternative group of employment called the morality police and the Bastige to uphold a number of things. One, the executions, Two, the constant interrogations and torture of private citizens without due process. And three, managing hijab, managing shorts, managing how people dress, how people look, are they dancing, are they singing, what they're they're doing on their Instagrams. And I think that he is, you know, I don't want to say he's smart, but he's certainly a clever person to realize that the future-proofing of his own power does not reside in the military. I think, I don't know, I heard rumors last week that he actually got, took away all of the guns from the military, their AR-15s and 14s. So it tells you, even that these rumors are going around, that he's quite paranoid that this military may turn against him in the same way they turned against the Shah. The morality police, the bastige are, for example, who pulled me over when I was in the late 90s with my sister driving on a Friday night to go get ice cream with my two cousins and held us overnight. The ones who correct you with your hijab, they're the ones who go through your bag to see if you have apps on your phone that are, they would consider inappropriate or music on your phone that's considered inappropriate. So they are really the morality police.
4: And then the second question is, is there any sense of a unified campaign or are these protests are these demonstrations sporadic in nature is there a domestic iranian opposition worth which is worthy of the name domestic and opposition
7: so i think the most beautiful thing about this revolution has been the headlessness of it it's a headless revolution there's opposition within the country there are multiple leaders leading these protests, organizing these protests. There are people who are right outside the borders, whether they're in Dubai or Turkey. Some of them are in Europe, newly arrived in Europe that are, you know, we're talking about millions of followers, hundreds of thousands of followers. You've got defected military police in Germany with almost 900,000 followers teaching people how to make bombs, how to make bulletproof jackets, how to run different operations on the ground. So you've got a strong oppositional a source and organization both in the country, you've got recently defected nationalists right outside the country. And then I think the number one surprise of this all, like the thing that really makes this the the sort of wild moment is that you've got the diaspora and the diaspora has been for generations telling everyone around the world that we're not Iranian, that we're Persian. We have been distancing ourselves from the Islamic Republic and Iran. We were not actively telling everyone that we were Iranian and we had a lot of shame. But what's happened is the diaspora is now, I would say between the ages of call it 25 to 50. And in the process, these these two to three million people outside have become quite successful have rised in ranks in terms of influence and power, are very good at organization, media, tech, media, communication. And I think that when all of the content came out and you started to see Keon and Nika, and you started to see Massa, and you started to see Yalda, for me, that was the one that really tore my heart into a million pieces. You saw these kids, and they were content creators, they were YouTubers, they were TikTokers, and they were, before the protests, making these, it was almost like a window into their lives in Iran, and they were brilliant and beautiful, and people like Shervin, writing yeah this guy could be like on tour with Bad Bunny, or Maluma, or Justin Bieber, like, You started to see like, oh, God, these these kids are actually like really just like us in the diaspora, both in Europe and the West, I think took it very personally, has taken it personally and has a real sense of duty to their grandparents, to their parents, to their cousins and families that may live there and or to the memory of who they are. Because no matter how many of us were born here, for me, I will say personally, it definitely does not feel like home. I do not feel that this is my home. I feel like this is where I live, this is where I've grown up, but I'm aware of the fact that I'm a minority. You know, my culture, my temperament, my language, my food, the way we move. Iranian people have a very specific culture. It became clear that most of us, all of us felt a sense of duty were quite homesick and wanted to meet the gen z youth of iran the diaspora very much wanted to be there on the other side there's a saying that's that's a that's a protest mantra and the mantra is which is don't be scared don't be scared we are all together and i think the diaspora took this and they chant And I think that has become a chance for us here to be in partnership with them, to be their messengers, to be their communicators, to evangelize their their passion and their wants for a freedom that they have yet to experience, but very much want to. So, yes, I think this diaspora is really rising to the occasion because the youth of Iran are quite brilliant, quite talented. And, you know, I think we all feel that we need to join them.
4: Helen, could you also speak to the strength and the power of the Iranian diaspora? What are the channels which are seen as credible in terms of people in the diaspora understanding what is going on at home? What apps are you using to communicate with friends, relatives, or maybe with protesters? Give us a real sense of how the, the Iranian diaspora may be using technology and media to not only understand what's going on back home, but also maybe to aid the protesters.
8: No, definitely. I think this entire revolution that's currently taking place wouldn't even be possible without the usage of technology right now. And I think what's going on is very much so twofold. The people in Iran are giving up Their lives, they're the ones on the ground doing all of the work. So they play a major role. And then the diaspora on the other side of things is playing a secondary role, which is to then take what they're doing and be able to provide that information to the international community in order to cause legitimate change. And I think. Even earlier, when we were mentioning the timeline of things and you brought up the point of, you know, Iran has abolished the morality police, the unfortunate thing is when news comes from Iran and anything comes from state media, there's a there's a major layer of propaganda associated with it. They're able to be spinsters and spin and manufacture consent to make things look, you know, however they would like for it to appear. So the beauty in social media, which I think also is is at a different place compared to uprisings that have come up in the past in Iran is that you have a generation that was brought up on social media. They know how to use it. They know how to share information. They're able to view you know, what is deemed to be normal across the world as far as basic human rights is concerned. And so they're now using these tools that they use to share videos and do TikToks and things like that, that Moshe was also speaking about, but now to tell their own stories. So they're not going to sit around and let state media speak on their behalf. They're going to shine a light on things. So they are using different channels, whether that be Twitter, hashtags, Instagram, Telegram, they're using various different apps to get their story out there. And as we know now, that comes with a very high, high risk. And incredibly difficult punishment if they're caught so they are giving up virtually everything to be able to share their stories and so for us when we receive that we have people kind of in place we have different political pundits and we have different members of our diaspora community whether they be in the arts or they be in different fields you have the everyday person that i kind of identify more on that side of the spectrum doing my part to kind of just share those stories as they come in. And so when we're able to do that, when we come together as a diaspora community, I think when we focus on things at large, like right now with the executions that are currently taking place in Iran, we've been able to get a lot of media attention surrounding that. And then when we are able to kind of use these different channels. We're looking at things such as like the UN vote that just took place today. We're able to kind of spread these messages in order to also elicit change in
0: the international community.
4: Helen, another question to you. How important is the position of, of the Crown Prince Reza Pavlovy in, in, in all of this, in just of maybe just being a beacon, just a rallying for some level of opposition? Is he the poster child of the diaspora? Does he, to your best understanding, have any real kind of influence and support back home actually in Iran?
9: This is
8: a question that depending on who you ask it to, there might be different viewpoints. But if you're asking me, Helen, I think my viewpoint is with the crown prince of Iran, and especially with the path of the dynasty in and of itself, there are particular reasons why the 1979 revolution took place. People were looking for change, and they were asking for something. And now here we are today, 43 years later, when I think you speak to people, especially if you're listening to some of the chants that are coming out of Iran. They're basically saying, like, we don't want a king. We don't want a supreme leader. We want democracy. So I think the idea of the crown prince right now, I, I don't think that is something that the people in Iran want. And our job as the diaspora is really to amplify their needs and their wants. It's not for anyone of us that live outside of Iran to make a decision on what, you know, a free iran should look like in my personal opinion and then as far as it relates to the crown prince i think right now his biggest role could serve as an individual that cares very deeply about the country of his birth and i think he could kind of serve as working with a lot of different people on the outside to kind of further the mission of the iranian people from more so as a spokesperson but i don't think as an actual political figure
1: The situation in Iran is where we start. It's raising concern internationally for the safety of protesters. And at this stage, Iran's foreign minister and media are raising the spectre of civil war death in police custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini on September the 16th has been followed by successive nights of protests. This week, there have been five death sentences handed down to protesters by the Iranian authorities. These sentences, of course, have been, well, doubt has been cast upon them by human rights groups. And since the protests began, 362 demonstrators at least have been shot dead by Iran security forces. It was the death of Maisa Amini, arrested by the so-called morality police, over her headscarf. Has become a focal point for all the anger Iranian people are feeling about their rulers and about their situation. Let's bring in for analysis Tara Kangalu, who's a journalist and professor at Georgetown University. Thank you very much for being with us. Can I start by asking how significant you feel it is that we're hearing from official voices the words civil war?
5: I think the government is at war with its people and the people are just raising their voice for what's their right. And if you look on the ground, those shooting brutally, choking, arresting, killing are the regime and the government, so they are the ones who are waging the war against Iranians who for the last 40 years have been isolated and deprived of meeting their their rights. If
4: you're in the audience, you are listening to a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is a podcast which I've been producing for some eight years. Primarily, we look at US and UK politics compared and contrasted. But this year, we really have widened our scope. We look at much more geopolitics, a subject which is really close and dear to my heart. We have neglected Shamefully, to look at the arising, the uprising of the Iranian people, which some now say is almost tipping into a civil war, and we are writing that wrong now. If you're in the audience and you you like what what you're hearing in terms of uh, the content which we're producing here at mid-Atlantic, what you can do is click on the little greenhouse and become a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club. If you listen to this at home and I always say this, but there are some five and a half thousand of you that download every episode of the podcast and the traffic is going up all the time. So thank you for that. What you could do also to give the podcast a thumbs up is to go on to Apple iTunes and write a five star review. That's the, the best way that we have in terms of increasing our listenership to the podcast. I just want to ask you one last question, which is somewhat pertinent to that last clip. Is Iran tipping into a civil war? If there is three months worth of protests with so many people detained, is Iran looking at not only a winter of discontent, but a civil war?
7: So I think it's really important for parties that want to give exposure to this movement to be careful to not incite or create rhetoric that could essentially hurt the Iranian people. And I think that's really been difficult to do because there's been many bad actors within the West who are essentially Islamic Republic mouthpieces who have been out there really creating an alternative narrative. And one of those narratives they're creating is that there is even such a threat as a civil war. Now, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that MEK, the Mojahedin, are looking to land grab, influence, and power. But there is not a resistance out in the streets protesting against these protesters. There is not. We we saw tens of thousands of businesses close their doors and strike in solidarity for three days. I think this is the beginning of the end. I don't think it's a if. It's a it's a question of how long and i think that i think the iranian people have gotten a taste of influence today you know in your timeline there's some monumental moments which is today the un's commission for women expelled the islamic republic from that from that commission. This is a monumental moment. This is a huge win for the Iranian people. Uh, It's going to send messages into the streets of Iran that the world is watching. The world is watching. You're seeing uh, a large amount of external parties now starting to sponsor citizenships, dual citizenships from Tomah to various different activists and and protesters who've been unjustly arrested. And so I don't believe that we're on the verge of a civil war, but I do believe that we are on the verge of a massive disruption and revolution within Iran. And it is, it is very clearly the Iranian people versus the Islamic Republic. And I think how, how I do not believe the people of Iran, they're not in the streets right now because they're afraid. They're scared. They're not protesting against the protesters because they object what the protesters want. I just think they are teetering and waiting on edge to see how far it's gonna go, how much blood will will be spilled, and what Western support will look like. And I think there's a number of things that are gonna start to happen. I think you're gonna start to see Assets of the Islamic Republic frozen internationally. I think you may not, I don't know that you will see embassies closed, but I think that you will see embassies downgraded. I think you will see visas terminated of the Islamic Republic abroad. And I think the next move is to make it very, 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 very difficult for the 2 million barrels of oil a day that are currently being produced and shipped and sold by the Islamic Republic to external parties like Germany like China, like Russia, various other parties, the world really needs to think about rather than it being an access of evil Iran, there's an opportunity that it's an access of opportunity. And with Putin on the border of northern Iran, if these two parties come together, we're gonna have a real problem. This will not be a Iran problem. This will be a Middle East problem. It will be a it will be a G seven West issue and it will also, you know, we have to be quite concerned for our friends in Israel and the safety of Israel and what, what is in store for Israel should the Islamic Republic and Russia join forces, which they clearly it's already Israel. have you know
4: thank you for that great answer Now is the point when we say to people who are in the audience, you can come up and ask a question to our to our two guests mudge and and Helen and if you are listening to this at home, what you can do is download the clubhouse app and then you can join one of the live recordings of the podcast. We record them. On Clubhouse. First, I'm going to go to you, Piotr Kurz, and then we're going to go, Eris Fink. And then Kim Murphy, one thing I do need to ask you, though, because we've had some great testimony as to what is actually happening in Iran from Mudge and and Helen. So if you can make your questions incredibly brief and then brief answers and we'll get everybody in who's on the stage on the podcast. Piotr Curzon.
6: Thanks, Rufid. I don't really have a question. As you know, I've been following this since it began. I just wanted to emphasise a couple of points, if that's all right. You know, as it stands, we're a long way off from a civil war. This isn't a civil war because... As Mo rightly points out, the two sides are not, there's no resistance against the protests. This is a case of the people taking it to the regime. Um, and what you're looking at more is a, a, a rebellion. And a rebellion can become an insurgency if you arm those who are rebelling against their dictator or their, their oppressor. So we're in a critical phase because with every revolutionary movement, you need a few factors. And one of the factors that's been missing until now is general strikes and we're beginning to see those happen more and more we're also beginning to see a greater sort of uh, should we say extreme response from the regime the the you know execution of two young boys amongst many others is just illustrative that the regime are getting uncomfortable and they're resorting to extreme measures as they were attempting to in the 80s and so the more that the iranian people continue to press the more that this is going to put pressure the removal of them from the women's rights body in the un was well far too late won't necessarily change anything but on the un front which i just wanted to emphasize is there is an important what's known as a snapback mechanism so basically in 2006 the iranian regime islamic regime sorry was designated under huge amounts of un multilateral sanctions and in 2011 these were lifted upon the signing of the jcpoa or the iranian deal under resolution 2231 now the british germans and french are three actors that are blocking away for this snapback mechanism to be reimposed. Uh, And it would have huge, huge, wide sweeping implications for the uh, the regime to an extent that the unilateral sanctions that the US and others have imposed so far don't. So there's an opportunity here to really, really squeeze the regime in a way that we haven't seen for a while and would only undermine their capacity to, say, support Russia with drones and generally uh, to support proxies around the rest of the Middle East. And so we need to continue to push for government's representatives to diplomatically isolate the Islamic Republic. They need to be no longer attendances at the UN, no longer attendances in other places. And we need to ensure that they are not given any access to, you know, foreign assets, travel bans, this sort of thing. Because if you do that, you render them essentially isolated within the country. And so you've got this top-down pressure combined with the bottom-up of the the Iranian people, helping to to bring around hopefully the end of of this abhorrent group. Um but I'll end there and I appreciate the, the the space. Thanks very Thank you, Piotr. Eris Fink.
3: Hi Royfield, thank you so much. Thank you for this room. So uh, you you were touching the Middle Eastern issue and Israel. And I have a question that is combined into two. So the first thing is that you, I, I want to 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 hear from you a little bit about what you elaborate on, on, on the Middle Eastern issue and the Islamic and the the, the regime. How do you see Israel's role in terms of what's happening in the region, in a few words? Secondly, I'm seeing in a lot of the journalist WhatsApps and groups that are covering Iran, some kind of uh, sometimes misinformation that's coming out there, which is very, very challenging. And I wanted to ask you how this is tackled. if you hear anything regarding those, you know, misinformation that's coming out and sometimes, you know, dealing with things that are not coming out accurate. So that's my question.
7: Sure. So I think it's important to recognize that Iran has historically always had a Jewish population, which many Jewish people have been exiled from Iran. And many Jewish Iranians fairly so feel that their their allegiance and their camaraderie and their their home is Israel now. So I think you know, Israel's role in this is quite complicated. Obviously, they have a vested interest in and in the Islamic Republic not being in a position of, of aggression and violence towards them. But also, it's fair to say, uh, and I think it's fairly known that the Islamic Republic invests in and funds, you know, the going ons within Syria and Hezbollah. And so it's difficult to know until we peel back the layer of onion on the Islamic Republic's funding and activities to these various different groups, it's going to be difficult to know how that region moves forward. I think there was a very interesting article in the Jewish Journal written by a very well spoken female rabbi, Tarlizda, I'm sorry, Ar- Rabizada, it. E. And she's Iranian-American Jewish. And I think that it talks about interfaith, interfaith locking arms to support a free secular Iran and the geopolitics between the West, Iran, Israel. Those topics are for someone more educated than me on the topic. I think it's fair to say all of this alliance will happen in a covert way. I do not think, and I think why the misinformation is happening is that as a function of being covert i don't think much communication that we will see the public will be overt i think that the region will move in a way where the misinformation is probably a strategy to distract from whatever it is going on simply because it because it's quite hot and triggering for the region as a whole and so you know history from years from now will probably learn about what is actually going on in a covert capacity and i'm i'm not i wish i knew what was going on but i don't Thank,
4: uh, you. thank you th- thank you, for that answer. All right, now, we are oh, just about the hour mark in terms of the recording, and I do want to get people in on, on the podcast recording when we come to the end of the recording of the podcast. So let's go, Greg Sattel. Yeah, thanks for you, Phil. My question is
9: to, to either panellist, but what are the institutional targets for the, the movement, and what mechanisms do you see by which those institutions can actually bring change about. Helen, do you want to take that?
8: Yes, no, most definitely. I think one of the institutions right now that is one of the biggest targets of the regime, if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think right now are the educational institutions. I think this uprising right now is very much so student-led. So we're seeing a lot of the movements that kind of are coming about are coming from the youth. And we're seeing like in different instances with Sharif University and the University of Tehran and so many different places that the students are the ones that are making a lot of noise. So they are also the ones that are coming under fire and a slightly different way than maybe some of the other institutions that we're seeing across the country. There's been reports that the regime prior to some of the nationwide strikes that were about to break out and some of the student strikes that were also going to occur were attempting to poison students via their dormitory sort of like meal plans, I guess you could say. So I think right now, with it being such a young movement and with students kind of leading the charge and demanding like a better future, they're definitely the ones that are being targeted.
4: Thank you for that, Helen. E. Rastambadi, you're up next.
5: Thank you so much, Royfield, for even holding the space. I, my, my question is for Mo. I noticed multiple times that you have a likened bass that doesn't have a T in it with the morality police and they are not the same thing. And since we're the diaspora is getting targeted with branding of misinformation, I think we hold a very important responsibility when we are coming on non-Iranian platforms in giving accurate information. The Basij is a branch of the IRGC, while the morality police, Ghasht-e Ershad, is a branch of the police. So they are actually not the same thing. To the woman that was speaking about donating, I want to really emphasize that there is no legal way to get money to the people of Iran. So please, please, please do your due diligence of where this money is going to and make sure the organizations that you are donating to are actually being transparent i think in the west we have a tendency you know when we don't have time or we don't have resources to give it's really easy for us to use money and say you know i'm going to donate to this cause to amplify this cause unfortunately when it comes to iran there is no easy way to support this cause this is day blood in day in day out this is you have to be invested in the future of this planet, because right now, the people of Iran, in their acts of bravery each and every day, which, Moj, I'm quite, quite upset that you would use the word scared when referring to the people of Iran when you are out here representing them, because the one thing the people of Iran are not right now is scared. Thank you very much. Okay.
7: Well, thanks for your feedback. I will just say I have 19 cousins, two aunts, and four uncles there and they are living in a state of fear. So my my expression of what they feel was directly from our family there. I'm not speaking for the people of Iran. I'm speaking for a select few older groups of people that have their own lived experience. And you sound like an amazing speaker, and I would highly recommend they have you speak next time.
8: And uh, I'm so sorry to to just jump in quickly. I did want to just rectify one point in case there was any sort of misunderstanding. As it pertains to donating money, E, I'm not sure exactly what your full name is, but just referencing that comment, I did want to make a note that like the Buruman Center, these are 501 American nonprofits. So they're U.S. based. They're not funneling money to Iran, but like for instance, one of the things that the Burman Center does work to do is they work on documenting different human rights abuses and being able to take these sort of notes and things of that sort to legislative leaders of different countries in order to do such as the UN vote that occurred today. They work very much so to bring that information to the broader international community. So when we talk about things like that, there are people that are are not donating, but they are giving a lot of their time and effort to this project on a day-to-day sort of like livelihood perspective. So that's what some of these centers are doing. I just wanted to rectify that one point.
7: I just wanted to thank you for having me and to just echo Ellen. These organizations like the Buraman Foundation have been really just doing the hard work for decades of years and we work with them a lot. And so we listed all of the nonprofits we knew on our site, including them and especially them because they are they've been monumental in what happened today. But thanks, everyone, for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for your continued coverage. It's really lovely of you.
4: Thank you, Marge. You've been an excellent guest. Thank you for giving us a lot of detail about, you know, an uprising of a proud people, which I think many media outlets in the West have only given it scant, scant coverage. So Thank you again, Marge. Helen, there's a question to you before we go on to San Apollo, because I'm, I'm a historian. At least I'm, I'm a student of history. It's probably a safer thing to say. And I'm trying to think of a an, an uprising. And I think Piotr was right. Is this, a, you know, some a rebellion, an insurgency? You know, it doesn't qualify in the, the classical definition of a civil war as yet. It, it doesn't. It could well tip into that. But I'm trying to think of such a. a level of of protest, of which some of it has been violent, where there actually hasn't been an opposition group or groupings which have been actually been fueling it. And I don't know how much of this is, is this the decentralization of technology and people using WhatsApp, etc., to to organize, or if this is going to be potentially a failing of the Iranian people in terms of trying to oust the regime that, you know, there isn't a place where people can seem to coalesce or an organization which is clearly putting the aims of the Iranian people in front of the regime.
8: Yes, no, definitely. I think, and again, I I also am a student of history. I quite very much so love history and Iranian history and, you know, just world history in general. So I am still a student. So I am learning myself day by day. And I I don't know the answer to that question, to be very honest with you. If I were to guess is one thing, but to speak with absolute certainty of, you know, what the future may hold. I, I don't know that. I can't say that I'm a historian of revolutions and being able to and rebellions and civil wars of that sort to be able to find a distinct pattern. And I think looking at things that have happened in the past it's also so different given the rise in technology and what role that's playing right now
4: no worries well listen i appreciate the honesty and i always find it refreshing when somebody honestly says i don't know as opposed to cobbling together an answer sano
9: polo over to you yeah yeah. thank you for the opportunity i would like to ask the panelists if you have heard the expression jahodit habin you know I, i would roughly translate it as jihad of propaganda or jihad of narrative. Are you familiar with that?
8: I have not heard that, no.
9: Yeah, yeah. well, that is the term that the Supreme Leader, Supreme Dictator Khamenei used for the first time a few years ago. I mean, they have always been doing it, but now we use this term, and he coined this term jihad at which means propaganda and telling their own narrative, not only inside Iran, but also all over the world. It is like a jihad for them. So they have planted their own people in the media. All over the world, you know, I would like everybody to search for a person named Walter Durante. He's it's a, it's a historical figure. He was a New York Times journalist who won the Pulitzer Prize. But it turned out all this time he was working for Joseph Stalin. So there are a number of people like that. And now the, the narrative they are trying to push is what they call another Iranian, I think French human rights activist, called it JcpoA Mafia that they are they're saying all the problems in Iran are because of economical reasons, and we, if we sign the JcpoA, all the problems will be solved so that is a part of the jihadi jihad of propaganda because in fact in, in reality, none of the slogans, not even one of them was about the economy that the, I mean the people are chanting it is not about the economy even in the brief period of time that things were partially lifted, nothing improved in people's economical lives inside Iran. And the regime used all the money for, like, terrorist proxies in Yemen and other places. And so, and there are a lot of, you know, things like that going on right after the, the, this the recent incident happened that said that they will abolish the morality police. This article, which was full of disinformation, came out of New York Times, and we saw the name Fanos Fasihi there. So I would like you to emphasize this jihad et and how we can fight that, which is basically Tehran propaganda thing.
8: I think it, being able to mobilize, I think is very important. So in addition to the work that I'm doing with the Azadi Co, which is our Streetwear for Freedom program, I am also an activist and member of Woman Life Freedom, NYC. So it's a local activist group here in New York City. One of the things that we have access to is, you know, the New York Times is here. So we were able to have a protest outside of the New York Times after the article about the abolishment of the morality police did come out. We kind of mobilized very quickly to get people to go. But knowing that there are different strategies that we can also implement as a diaspora and ally community, which is having very targeted media campaigns where they aren't, you know, just send an email during this one period of time. So one of the things that we did was when we went to The New York Times on physical foot for those of us that could. We also asked the community at large to join us at the exact same time as far as bombarding, you know, the emails, email inboxes of the editorial team at the Times and then also their Instagram and Twitter feeds as well. I think it's having very much so did efforts in being able to fight that sort of misinformation as we see it. I think right now the role of Western media to an extent hasn't, hasn't really played in our favor. If I'm being very honest, in my personal opinion, as an Iranian American, as a person that very much so cares about this cause, the media is not moving the needle. I think back to East point when she was kind of saying, you know, we are fighting against misinformation. So it's incredibly important for when we do take up space and we are speaking on things to be as educated as we can. And if we don't know something to basically say, I don't know, because you never want to say something out of turn that can then be used against us down the line. So I think when we are fighting against against propaganda, it's incredibly important to invite context and to invite more facts into the conversation and being able to pull these things together. And then also being able to mobilize where we're not just posting on social media, but having a strategic plan in place as we are doing that. That's my personal opinion on how we could maybe help to fight some of this stuff.
4: Tom Blair, you've been waiting patiently for quite some time.
10: Thanks for having me and bearing my view in this very interesting discussion. And I have a lot of doubts if we are able to see the situation correctly, because looking at the history, how the regime collapsed, and at the process of collapsing regimes and the presence, conflict, Ukraine and Russia, and what's happening there. And I can see that regime has a lot of resources, financial, strong army, lack of support from the West to the opposition for today, and alliance with Russia. And also there are many divisions in Iranian society, all of kind divisions, and also lack of central body, which is steering with the process and the situation also in what happened to Syria after the revolution, collapsing of the the regime. I mean, my question is, if the democracy which we are thinking is the best solution, is it real, the best solution? Because I can see that almost all Arab countries which are successful our kingdoms rather jordan saudi qatar and is it is it correct is it not biased by our western look that we are supporting democracy in iran thanks
8: I think that's actually a really great question. I think when you look at Iran and also in ancient times being Persia, Iran is theoretically speaking the founder of human rights and the idea of democracy. You have things like the Cyrus Cylinder that are thousands and thousands of years old where when you go into the the UN in and of itself, the four articles of the Declaration of the Human Rights Act that that came into place in 1948, those are based off of Cyrus the Great's principles. So I think when you look at Iran as a modern-day society, you have people that Think in a very progressive lens that are not allowed to flex that muscle. They're being very much so oppressed by the current regime. And then I think when you look back to the time of the monarchy in Iran prior to the revolution as well, regardless of what people's opinions are, a revolution did end up occurring because there was a faction of the population that was very much so unhappy with the situation that they were currently living in. So I think the demands for democracy, as long as it's coming from the people in and of itself, I don't think that's the West. Western world really pushing it on people. I think people want to have a voice. And when we look at what the people are demanding, that is what they're asking for. And so I think it would be, I think it would be a shame for us to not listen to them right now, especially when they're the ones that are risking their lives to get that message across.
11: Thank you for that. Samuel Kumar. Yes, very interesting. And I just want to say, I think it's a beautiful thing that Iranian people fighting for their freedom And I think it's amazing that bad actors, you know, who want to have a greater Iran or separation of Iran or by any form run the errands of the criminal in Russia are pushed aside and Iranians telling them, shut up, this is not your fight. I think that's a great thing. Also, one crucial important thing that I wish the West would do is stop pretending this is a fight against the Islamic regime of Iran and instead recognize that this is the fight against the ideology of Islam as a whole. Okay, thank you. Helen?
8: I don't know if I necessarily completely agree with that point, but again, I'm one person. I, I know there's probably people that would agree with me. But I think when you look in any Iranian society within the people of Iran, there are people that are very much so non-religious. I think when you have religion sort of enforced on people, it definitely deters people from practicing. But there are people also that do identify to not fanatical Muslim followers. So I do think that this is very much so the Islamic Republic using Islam as a mechanism to stay in power they're able to manufacture whatever they whatever law that they would like under the guise of Islam but that doesn't mean that this is actually what Islam is and what it necessarily stands for
11: so this is exactly what I'm talking about
8: yes I, I'm saying but you were saying that it's fighting the ideology no, I'm, say,
11: I'm saying you I'm saying you're part of the problem because you're doing exactly the same thing
8: and, and because it's not fighting against a, a religion that two billion people believe in that many because, of
11: them... because what exactly has the iranian regime done that's not islamic and if if it's taken out of context or saying that they portray islam in a bad manner where exactly does a good state of islam exist exist in the world
8: you could look at singapore
11: yeah it's filled with corruption and they have sharia and, and apostasy as well
8: i personally do not identify a Muslim individual. And I believe that there should be a separation of religion from the political forum altogether. That's my personal ideology. I'm not here for theocracy. But I do think that it would be it wouldn't be very beneficial to also perpetuate Islamophobic points when you are fighting a revolution based on this theocratical government at this point in time to get Western people involved.
4: There you go. There was a brief overview of the Iranian uprising. I I think I'll speak for just about everybody on on stage with total unanimity behind the Iranian people and and their quest for for basic human rights, especially the women of Iran. People should be able to practice their religion, but when religion is mixed with state and you have a theocracy, basic human rights are, are suppressed. And Iran and the Iranian people have suffered at the hands of this theocracy for way too long. You should be able to display your hair if that's what you care to do. This is the most minimal of human rights. I do make this plea for people who are either in the live audience or listening to the podcast to please write us a review on an Apple podcast. It's the one thing I do bang on about apart from just civility because it does mean more people get to listen to the podcast. Don't forget, leftist centre politics is right-thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but we, we listen to them then try and wing them over with our strength of our argument. And sometimes we learn from them too by the act of listening. That is the basis of any democracy. It's the Commonwealth, the space where people can agree to disagree and where they can talk to each other. That's what Mid-Atlantic is all about. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.